Welcome to Security Heroes, a podcast by Athena Security. We share real life stories to help connect you to real heroes in the security world. I'm your host, Lisa Falzone. Warning, the following recording contains potentially disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. So joining me today is Jerry Fretz, the Director of Security of Parks Casino. Jerry is an experienced security professional who has served in various fields, including law enforcement, the U.S. Navy, entertainment, professional sports, criminal investigations, and private sector security operations. First off, I just wanted to say thank you for your service to the country and for protecting the public. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So just to start off, what sparked your interest in pursuing a career in the security field? So I grew up blue collar. My father was a firefighter in Philadelphia. So as a young boy, I dreamed of possibly being a firefighter. So when I graduated high school, they had a test for firefighter. They also had a test during that same time frame for a police officer. So I applied for both. I took both tests. The unfortunate thing for me is that firefighters at the time, there was probably only 2,200 of them and there was 8,600 police officers. So I wasn't called to be a firefighter, but I was called to be a police officer. So I, um, you know, I was looking for full-time employment, looking for a career. You're a young man. And I liked the idea of the excitement of uh, law enforcement. So at 21 years of age, I joined the police department. So your question would be, well, you, you took the test when you were 18 and it took till you were 21 to get on, on the police department. So the issue was that back in the day, there were no women in law enforcement and the current mayor was against women in law enforcement. So the federal government sued the Philadelphia Police Department in federal court in order to have police women join the Philadelphia Police Department. Interesting. My wife was a Philadelphia police officer. So that's how I met her. So it took two or three years through the courts for them to be able to hire police officers. So at the age of 21, I joined the Philadelphia Police Department. Awesome. So tell me about how your studies in law and management have influenced your approach as a security professional. So, you know, early on, like I said, I I came out of high school with a high school education and there was no college required to be a police officer at that time. So I went right into law enforcement and I spent some time in law enforcement, probably five years or so. And and then you aspire, or some people do, aspire to, to move up the ladder. And so my father you know, was behind me. He always wanted me to, he says, look, you know, you don't want to be a line level employee. You need to take the test. You need to elevate yourself. And so I did. So I believe I was a lieutenant actually, or maybe I was a sergeant. So I made sergeant on my own with a high school education. And then I went uh, to go for lieutenant. And at that point, I went back to school. I went to college. I went to a two-year college initially. So when I went to apply, you had to take like an interest exam that had various English, mathematics, and grammar and stuff like that. So I took it. And then in the auditorium, which had about 2,000 people present, these two uh, professors announced five names, of which I was one of them. And we were pretty much older individuals, not like young kids. And they asked us to come out and go to a room. And I'm like, oh, man, I think I flunked. And it just doesn't embarrass me, you know? So we sat down, and his name was Don Weinberg. He was a professor And he said, listen, congratulations. He said, you guys scored the highest out of anyone in the auditorium. And we want to offer you a program called the Humanities Enrichment Program, which is a combination of 
grammar and history. So that was the kickoff. You know, you're out of school probably at that time, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, maybe longer. And you're apprehensive about how are you going to do after you've been on the shelf for that long. So I took that program and then I was off and running and and I got uh, through my two-year degree in criminal justice. And then I went to uh, St. Joseph's University and I took up business management. And then that prepared me for my career down the line, both in law enforcement. I elevated myself to captain. I was in the military. So I went from enlisted to officer with my commissioning. And then I got the job here in, in the casino. I've been here 16 years. August will be 16 years. So obviously, people look at your resume and they, they want to know what your education level is and what's your background. So all those things combined just helped me to, I guess, move into the corporate world. Awesome. What did 30 years plus experience in both Navy and law enforcement teach you about the best way to respond to a life or death situation? So every situation is different, right? There's mm-hmm. all different factors. So, you know, you often have to have the ability to control the outcome by the way that you control yourself and you try to control what's taking place. So for me, I don't know if you're familiar with the term verbal judo. So I guess in layman's terms, verbal judo is a way to like talk somebody off off the ledge. You know, it's, right. it's, um, you try to get down to their level. You try to experience what they're experiencing. You try to empathize with their situation and that's called verbal judo. And it, it kind of talks people off of the shelf. And as a defensive mechanism, you got to remain calm and you have to develop a thick skin because mm-hmm. people are going to say things that upset you or you're going to sure. see things in your career that normal people don't see. And then in order to survive in that world, both military and law enforcement, you get that thick skin and you become cold and callous, which protects you from mm-hmm. being mentally burnt out or mentally affected by what you see. But then, you know, sometimes it's hard to turn the switch on and off. And, you know, I often, you know, my own family will say to me, you know, you're callous, you're cold because nothing mm-hmm. affects you, you know, like in your right. heart, you feel it, but you don't express it. But someone can't look at you and see that you're hurt because you still have that stoic look. So right, it's good and bad. I totally get that. What are some of the craziest, most unbelievable experiences you've seen in your career? So in my career... I'll give you an example. So I was 21 years old, just graduated from the academy. I was on the street for two weeks in November of 1977. Back then, we worked in solo cars in Philadelphia and responded to a, a man with a gun call, threatening tenants. And we pulled up to a, a multifamily dwelling. I say we. I was the first car. And then one of the police officers that backed me up, he also joined me. So the two of us approached the building. And one of the tenants informed us that the gentleman on the first floor had threatened her and her husband with a firearm and kind of pointed us in the direction of where the apartment door was. So, you know, they tell you never stand in front of the door. You learn that like day one in the police academy. So I didn't stand in front of the door. I stood off to the side. I stood on the side where the hinges were. Mm-hmm. And the individual that I was with, the other police officer, stood on the doorknob side of the door. And we banged on the door. And then uh, the individual inside opened the door and came out on an angle where I was standing and, and basically jammed the handgun into my chest. We didn't wear bulletproof vests in 1977. And then I heard three shots go off. So I honestly thought that I had possibly been shot, although I didn't feel anything. And then I looked over and I saw the police officer that I was with. He had his gun in his hand. And in fact, he's the one that shot the assailant and killed him at you know, 21 years of age. So I remember going to homicide and giving a, a statement. Mm-hmm. And I remember the homicide detective walking up to me and 
you know, I had never fired a real firearm as a young man in my life until I became a police officer. So he handed me a, a bullet and he asked me if I knew what it was. And I said, well, it's a bullet. He said, no, no, do you know what this is? I said, well, that's a primer. And he said, do you see the dent in the primer? I said, yeah. He says, he pulled the trigger. It just didn't go off. And they later determined that the firearm had a weak hammer spring, which prevented mm. the discharge of the firearm. So, I, you know, that was two weeks on the street as a 21-year-old young police officer. You know, I, but I've been involved yeah. in other, you know, I moved on and I was on the SWAT team. I was a SWAT team leader. You know, you handle various incidents. But, you know, you talk about having thick skin and you're talking about, you know, being able to handle every situation. This particular incident where an individual barricaded himself in the basement of his mother's home where he lived. And I developed a rapport with him, speaking to him. And then at one point I mentioned the fact he told me he was or his mother had mentioned that he was a veteran, a Vietnam veteran. And I was equally a veteran. So I tried to develop that rapport. And then after I mentioned to him that, that I was a veteran, you know, he put the gun to his head and he killed himself. Right. So and then when we went downstairs, he was fully prepared to take his own life. No one was going to talk him out of it because mm-hmm. he had his uniform, his military dress uniform, you know, laying on the bed. That's what he wanted to be laid out in and whatnot. And so, you know, that troubled me. I was just trying to think, is could I have handled it any differently? And I would handle it the same way as I handled it back then. You just don't know what a trigger is, what triggers somebody to, to want to take their own life. I don't know. To this day, it kind of troubles me. I mean, he's a fellow veteran. And could I have done anything different? Probably not. He already made his mind up prior to my arrival. Yeah. There's nothing that I could really have done any different. Totally. So what kind of drives you? I mean, what kind of inspires you to be in this field, to go to work every day? I mean, I've been out of law enforcement 16 years, right? So right. I retired in 2008 mm-hmm. after I returned from Iraq. I was in Iraq. I fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was a reservist. I had parallel careers. And I was called to active duty twice. So, and then you see the same crazy things over, you know, overseas in war that you see in your own city. But I'll be honest with you, the the fact that I went over there at 51 years old when I went to Iraq and having the career that I had in Philadelphia and and seeing everything that I saw in my career in Philadelphia, I was unaffected when I went to Iraq in a combat zone. But I had young men around me who basically they were scared to death, right? And I get it. But so I went over there with that cold, callous attitude right. where nothing affects you in order to maintain some level of supervision and, you know, to try to settle these individuals down. Thank God nothing ever happened to any of us on two tours. And that's a good thing, right? I was the team leader in both situations and you want to bring everybody home. So that's a good thing. So I had parallel careers. And then when I left law enforcement, I saw an opportunity to, to maybe move into the corporate world. And I saw an opportunity to be the director of security at Parks Casino, formerly Philadelphia Park Casino. And then it evolved into Parks. I came up here. I had five interviews. And ironically, this is funny, but so we all go in a room, six of us. So, you know, you try to size up the work, you know, the people that you're going up against. Mm-hmm. And I kind of whittled it down to me and another guy, just me being me. And so they call us all in together. And there's probably six people from HR in front. And they said, listen, this is the entertainment industry. And y'all are going to have to dance to YMCA. <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh. And, and I look at the guy to the left of me or the right of me, the left of me. And, and we're all puzzled, you know. Yeah. So I look at my watch. And then the HR director, who's now a personal friend of mine here at the casino, she said, oh, do you have somewhere to go? 
So I'll be honest with you. I mean, if I'm dancing a YMCA, I'm stoned at a wedding. I mean, <laughs> she said, no, no, you're not going anywhere. You know, you, you got to dance. So obviously I knew how to dance, I suspect, because I got the job. So <laughs> in here 16 years. Show us a little dance. Yeah, <laughs> YMCA. So yeah, so that was the start of my uh, corporate career. Although I did work for Major League Baseball with a collateral duty, both assigned to the Philadelphia Police Department and assigned to the baseball commissioner as a, a liaison for the Philadelphia Phillies. I did that from 1994 to 2001. Of course, the yeah. Phillies win anything back then. But so that, you know, that's your little taste of, of the corporate world. Although everyone I dealt with was former or current law enforcement. So I guess that wouldn't be a real taste of corporate world. But this is definitely the taste of the corporate world here in the casino. Yeah, definitely. How have you seen the level of violence or danger change in your time at in the casino industry? Like I said, I, I've been here almost 16 years. I never saw it as violent. You know, sometimes you have individuals that are intoxicated and they get upset and, you know, you might get into some type of a struggle with them or maybe even fisticuffs once in a blue moon. It's not a commonplace thing, but it seems that, you know, after COVID, everybody just the world went upside down, right? Like you right. shootings and, you know, people, firearms everywhere. So I went to the to the executives and I said, listen, patrons are, they're afraid as well as employees with all the gun violence. I mean, we border Philadelphia and Philadelphia is a third world country as far as I'm concerned with all the violence that takes place there. So, and we're literally right on the border. Right. So I, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I think we should, you know, get some security equipment. And they said, well, what kind of security equipment? I said, well, you know, we need that metal detection equipment to try to thwart individuals from coming in the building, whether they legally possess it or illegally possess it. That's not my concern. I'm not the police. I just don't want you in the building with mm -hmm. any type of a firearm or weapon. Weapons could be knives, box cutters, tasers, hammers, wrenches, screwdrivers. When you go to come into the building, you have to go through the uh, Asena security system and, you know, once we detect it, you have to either leave or go to your automobile and leave that contraband in the car. So, but prior to COVID, I don't know what it is, but, you know, you watch the news every day. I've never seen it in the country. I've never seen it as violent as it is today, post-COVID. What reasons do you think? Do you have any ideas? I have no clue. I mean, it, some of the issues, and this is me being personal, I just see a lot of public officials who are... Uh, you know, they want to get elected, right? So they're very lenient. They're lenient as far as crime goes. And I'll give you an example here in Philadelphia. They have a, a district attorney, you know, he, he would rather go after a police officer, an incarcerated police officer, than to incarcerate a true criminal on the street. Right. I mean, I, I think it has a lot to do with that. You look at a lot of the major cities in, in the U.S., and they have the same problem. It's not just right. Philadelphia. They have individuals. It's very political. You know, yeah. nobody wants to offend anybody. Nobody right. wants to be in the news that they're the district attorney that hammers everybody. But, you know, that's what people want. That's what citizens want. They want to be safe in their homes. They want to be safe to walk around in their environment, in their neighborhoods. And that's not taking place right now. So hopefully it changes. Totally. Can you share an experience where you intervene during violent situations to save lives? I mean, so most recently, so we're all unarmed. Right. We, the, the security team, we're all unarmed. And we have uniformed state police officers who have an office in our building. To say they're here 24-7, that would be a fib, right? So I went downtown to Philadelphia with a coworker because we sponsored a luncheon. So we went down 
It was the Korean War veterans lunch. And so we went there and then I returned. And when I got out of my car, I, I noticed that there was three Ben Salem Township police officers in our parking lot. And they were talking to a woman and there was like a small crowd that had formed around them. And so I called our command center on the on the phone and I said, hey, I see Ben Salem in the parking lot. You know what's going on? And they said, oh, we just had a, a robbery point and gun. And the individuals now in foodies, which is our food court, uh, threatening people. I'm like, oh, my. So, you know, I entered the building. You know, they alerted the law enforcement authorities to respond. I had gotten there first. So you have to make a decision. Now I'm unarmed and I could see the firearm. It was in his pocket. I could see the outline of it. Did he have two? It turned out he didn't. But could he have two? Yeah, he could. But I just took the chance that he had the firearm in his pocket. He wasn't going to get to it. I can promise you that. So do I want it to escalate? Because he was arguing with people and you know, he obviously was out of his mind. So do I want it to escalate into like an active shooter situation if I have the ability to intervene to prevent that? So I took that chance. And so I grabbed him. And then, you know, a slight struggle ensued and the police responded and we were able to get him in the custody and retrieve the firearm. So without a shot fired. So that's just a decision that you make, you know, shoot from the hip, you know, like something. Yeah, I, don't, I would do it again today, although I got chastised from my executives because I am unarmed and I went up against someone that was armed. But I would do it again today. Yeah, that must have been really scary because he was armed. How did you do that? I mean, where did you, can you just so, be a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, so when you're in law enforcement, and you're in the military, as long as I was, there's really no fear involved because if you're fearful all the time, right? be a good law enforcement officer or military officer. So it actually what kicks in is your training. Sure. Constantly you train, you train, you train, and then it, it be, training becomes second nature. I mean, I've been in shootouts. I was in a shootout as a police captain, four individuals on New Year's Eve back in uh, 1999 in the city. 200 shots fired and, you know, it just kicks in and, and then you just react to the point where I actually reloaded my firearm and never knew that I reloaded it because you constantly train to reload your firearm after you exchange gunfire and you don't know how many shots that you fired. You don't want to be in a, a second gun battle and realize that you only had two rounds left in your magazine. So I, they call it a combat reload. So I didn't even know I did it because when I went to internal affairs and they asked to look at my firearm, it was fully loaded. And they're like, you said you fired, you know, X amount of shots. And I said, I did. And I said, your firearm's fully loaded. And then I realized I looked at my gun belt and tucked in my gun belt was the expended magazine. So just training kicks in. Yeah, you kind of like get in the zone. Right. You don't you get tunnel vision because, you know, right. somebody could have other, there could be other perpetrators. So it, you got to prevent yourself from being involved in tunnel vision. You still have to look around, but you zone everything else out. How did you get the gun? Did you? get the gun or you tackled him or how did, no, how no. did... So I, I personally went up to him pretty much chest to chest. And then I could see the police officers in the background responding with their long guns. And, you know, I just didn't want him to get to his firearm and then pull it on the police and then they shoot him and then and I'm standing behind him and I become a casualty. So I grabbed his arms and then I pushed him up against the wall. And then I held his arms behind his back and the police officers handcuffed him. And then, you know, he did a, a search in his pocket. I went in his pocket. I said, this is where the firearm is. And we retrieved it. It was a bit of a struggle. And so the police officers are, you know, they have the camera systems and are, they're reluctant to use like a strong force against somebody. It's all yes, sir. No, sir. I mean, you're not dealing with a normal individual. You're dealing with. Sure. So, I mean, I'm not under those same rules. Yeah. So I kind of took him to the ground and sat on him. And, you know, the rest is history. He took him into custody and, and we disarmed him. So and now he's in jail. It's a very heroic story. And you don't look at it as being heroic. You just look at it yeah. as it almost becomes expected of you, I guess. You know, right. 
Well, I think for the average person like myself, I mean, I see that as very heroic. Probably you're doing heroic things on an everyday basis. So yeah, it's just really inspiring what you did. Just really random question. Do you feel like you need to keep in shape for this job or? I mean, I do it personally. I mean, I'm yeah. going to the gym today. I go to the gym three days a week. Right. And I keep myself in good physical condition for myself, for my family. Right. But, you know, you look around and, you know, I'm not bashing police officers, but I look at the police officers of today. Not right. All, but, you know, right. they're out of shape and they're right. uniform. Their uniform's not clean and pressed. And I'm just, I'm not talking about the general population. I'm just talking about individuals that I pick out. You know, shoes aren't shine. And, you know, I I was in an era right after the Vietnam War where, you know, you you had all, mostly all the police officers were Vietnam veterans or Korean War veterans. And they took pride in the way that they wore their uniform. All their leather goods were polished. They were clean shaven. Their their hair was high and tight. Even the women, you know, their hair was up on and they just had that professional look. But I don't see that today. And then and everybody's afraid, I guess, to tell people how they should look. If you yeah. come to Pars Casino, I guarantee you that you'll see professional security officers, both men and women of all races and creeds, who their hair is, is well-groomed. The women's hair is in a bun. There's no visible tattoos allowed. They have right. to, you know, height and weight proportionate. The uniform is inspected every day by the managers. I have a shoe shine equipment so they can shine their shoes. And yeah. a lot of it has to do with the way that you look, right? So right. I don't know if you remember Ed Bradley from 60 Minutes. He's deceased. But so I used to watch 60 Minutes. And I, I distinctly remember Ed Bradley doing an interview with an individual who had killed a police officer and he was in jail for life. So they were just talking. And he basically said to him, he said, why did you do it? And he said, because I knew I, I knew that I could take him, meaning he knew that he could take the police officer. He said, well, why did you think that? He says, well, he said, to be honest with you, I looked at him. He was out of shape. His leather goods were brown. His uniform was not cleaned or pressed. And his firearm looked like it had dust all over it. It hadn't been taken out in years. Right. I knew that I could get over on him. And so Ed Bradley said to him, well, what would have changed your mind? He says, if I were to look at somebody who was a former Marine and his, his web gear was all clean and polished, he was high and tight, he was in physical shape, I would probably, you know, I probably would not have taken him on. And that stayed with me my whole life. And, you know, that's something that I'll never forget. And, you know, appearance means a lot, right? When you look at somebody, if you're intimidated by them, just by their meek appearance of their professional appearance, then you're going to be reluctant to want to take them on. Yeah. I mean, just as a civilian, I mean, it's, I feel a lot more comfortable, right? If I see someone that's like in shape, can tackle people, can, you know, so it makes me feel a lot safer. So after this incident, did anything change? So after the incident, we got the Athena security equipment and placed that. So that's that's at all our entrances. It's utilized in our one of our satellite casinos that's being utilized, and it's also utilized at our racetrack. And they're very, very effective. Like I said earlier, no one gets through the door with any type of a firearm or any type of a knife. So mm-hmm. most recently, we had someone say, oh, it's only a, a five-inch blade. Yeah, well, think about the hijackers. They had box cutters, and that's a one-inch blade, and they took down jet airliners. So even somebody that comes in with a hammer on their belt or a large wrench or big screwdriver, they're not going to work on any cars inside the building, so they need to put it in their automobile. And for the most part, 99% of those individuals are compliant. They don't argue with us. They walk out, and surveillance follows them to their vehicle, and they'll get back to us and say, hey, that individual went to their vehicle. Of course, they got to go through the equipment again. Or if they're reluctant 
to put their firearm in the vehicle. Some, you know, police officers, some police agencies, you're not allowed to put your duty weapon in your vehicle. And that would violate their company policy. So, I mean, it's their decision. If they don't want to leave it in their car, they'll have to leave and they'll come back another day. But that's not my concern. My concern is I don't want anybody in the property other than law enforcement that are stationed here to have any type of a firearm or a weapon. Totally. What's the general response been from the public with Athena Security Solution? I mean, I, yeah, once in a blue moon, you'll have somebody complain. Well, I think this is overkill. It's this, it's that. You know, and, and my response, if I'm out there and I actually hear it, is that, you know, the, the world's upside down, right? And sure. uh, we're looking to protect our employees. We're looking to protect you and everybody that enters the building. So they enter the building and it's neutral. Nobody has any weapons, but the ones that are supposed to have the weapons. And that's what you have to do. You can't come in with a weapon. It's clearly posted. When you walk in the building, it's not a surprise. There's signage everywhere. It's saying, you know, no weapons of any kind are permitted in the building. And you're going to be subject to the Athena uh, security system. You have to go through it and you have to clear it in order to continue on into the building. Yeah. And I can imagine as an unarmed security officer, you know, you definitely don't want, you know, people that are armed coming in. So what are the qualities of an outstanding security individual? What do I look for? Yeah. Well, so you you want somebody... So they're not security officers. We call them security ambassadors, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have to interact with the public, right? So if you show hard nose and, and you right. your patrons, they're not going to want to come back, right? So we're all about customer service. We wish them well, wish them good luck, greet them when they get here, you know, wish them luck when they leave, safe travels. So you're looking for someone who is professional. You know, I'm not going to lie and tell you that everybody that walks in the door for an interview it's clean shaven. You know, we have a clean shave policy, you know, height and weight proportionate and, and they have the professional look to themselves, but they don't work here because they can't get past the interview process. If they have visible tattoos, that's not a look that we want. We have a lot of older uh, folks that come through the doors in the morning. And, and can you just imagine, you know, somebody dressed in a security uniform with, you know, tattoos all over their face? It's not the look that we want. So security officers have to have their hair. They have to be well-groomed. The women can have longer hair, but it has to be in a bun. They can't have out, you know, absorbent makeup on. Their uniforms are issued by the security department, and we maintain them as far as with a seamstress. We tailor them to fit the individuals. We dry clean them, and they have multiple uniforms that they can wear every day. The only thing that a security officer here has to supply is, is a belt and comfortable leather shoes that you can polish. We don't allow them to wear sneakers. And we don't wear a typical security guard outfit. They wear a blazer, a maroon blazer that basically says park security and black pants, hence security ambassador. They, they don't look like a typical security guard that you would see you know, in some of the other casinos. It's just not the look that we want. But somebody, you know, they have to be compassionate, I can train anybody. You don't have to come in here with any security background whatsoever. We give you 80 hours of training, a dedicated training team. So you can walk through the door and uh, have zero security experience whatsoever. But if you have the other qualities whereby, you know, you, you need to get along with, with your coworkers, you need to treat people with respect on the floor. You got to develop thick skin because, you know, some people, what I say, patrons, I should say, they're drinking, they're gambling. And then sometimes they get upset and they say things that they shouldn't say. So if, if you're an individual that you're going to take that to heart and you're going to become upset, this isn't the job for you, right? You got to develop that defensive mechanism to, to have thick skin and, and let it roll off your back. Right. So just in closing, if you had one piece of advice 
or one guiding principle for any individual working in the security field that might face a life or death situation, what would it be? I would just say remain calm and rely on the training and focus on the event that you're dealing with at the very moment. And if you allow your emotions to control you, then you're destined for failure. You have to control the situation. Okay, great. Anything else you want to add? It's a pleasure talking to you. Like I said, the equipment that we put in place September of 2022 is very effective. I'm not going to share the statistics, but we do interdict a number of individuals whether they have legal firearms or illegally possess them, that's I'm not the police. I just know that you're not going to come in the building with that weapon. Right. So the equipment is very, very effective and we're pleased. Well, we're happy to be a part of keeping people safer. You've spent your whole life doing it and hopefully, you know, our technology is helping as well. So we're all on the same team. Yeah. And I know you say you're a cold, callous person, but you seem like you also have a lot of heart. So (laughs) I mean, to put yourself in these kind of situations where you're protecting people or protecting yourself. And it's just, I think that takes a lot of heart. Our team is professional. I pride myself on having a very professional team. We've gotten a lot of uh, accolades from visiting dignitaries who express that our team is very disciplined and, and, you know, they just have that professional look. And that, you know, to date, we've saved lives from individuals who have suffered massive cardiac arrest, whereby actually we're all trained in CPR first aid, and we've actually brought people back to life. They were motionless, blue color, laying on the floor, and we get calls from the ER doctors who actually dealt with the individual when they got to the hospital through our local EMS saying that had it not been for the quick action of the security team at Parks, this individual would have expired. And so that makes me as an individual feel good that that I'm responsible for training the security officers, but it also makes the security officers feel good in themselves that they gave somebody another shot. Not everybody survives and and counsel them, you know, when someone does pass. You did everything that you could do. It's Mm -hmm. just unfortunate, but it's just going to happen. So, but yeah, we do a good job. I'm happy with the team that I have. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are phenomenal stories. Is your wife still a police officer? Or is she in no, the security? No, so she left the job and it was sort of the agreement to leave the job to get married. So oh, okay. 44 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also those women that were in the police working as police officers, you know, 40 years ago. I mean, they're hardcore to be in that industry. I mean, it's tough. At that time. You had to deal yeah. with the male culture, right? Right. 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 The male police officers not wanting you to be there. Right. Um, and that was like I was dating a police woman. So, that, so it was rough, you know, because you, I don't know, you, you weren't allowed to date someone that would, that you worked with. And that was sure. a problem. So it had to be hush hush. So you couldn't act like you were getting upset if somebody said something off color to that person. Right. They did well for themselves. Cool. Well, hey, thank you so much. Do you have kids? Are they in the security industry? No, no. I, I mean, I'm the only one in, in law enforcement in my entire okay. family. My father was a firefighter okay. and in yeah, the military yeah. and, and in the Navy. And then, and then myself, my uncles, and they were all in the military. But no, my son is a is an electrician. My daughter, both of my daughters are homemakers now, but one uh, has her own business. And my other daughter, prior to raising children, was she had a master's degree. She was a special needs teacher. So Cool. Yeah, that's the route that they took. Nobody had an interest in law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. Your career is an inspiration. And I'm just so excited that we can highlight just a couple of your, I know you don't call them heroic stories, but I think I can call them heroic stories. So just thank you so much. And yeah. thank you so much for your service for the country and for the people that live here. Thank you. 
Security Heroes is brought to you by Athena Security. To find out more about Athena Security and how we help save lives through our weapon detection solution, visit www.athena-security.com. And then make sure to search for Security Heroes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Athena, thanks for listening.